Live from WABE, this is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, a big election night for Georgia incumbent mayors and for pro-choice advocates nationwide. Plus, an exclusive AJC poll shows Georgia voters are evenly split in a matchup between President Biden and Donald Trump. We'll look deeper into the numbers. I'm Greg Bluestein, live in Miami, preparing to cover tonight's Republican presidential primary debate. I'll have a preview. I'm Tia Mitchell, live in Washington. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene backs down from her resolution to censure Representative Rashida Tlaib. For me, I decided to pull it. She's getting censured. That's what I set out to do. Hear what she had to say about the leadership in the House. Later, we talk to Adam Kinzinger about the threat posed by Trump's comeback bid. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Later in the show today, we're going to be talking to former U.S. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who has a brand new book out. It's going to be really interesting to hear what he says about some of the national results of elections last night. And Greg, I'd like to start there, uh, first with Georgia. Incumbent mayors basically had a great night, and we've been paying particular attention to incumbent Mayor Van Johnson down in uh, Savannah, uh, who won by 70-plus percent of the vote, we think setting him up for later on making a statewide race as a Democrat, yes? Exactly. He demolished his opponent, winning by 57 points. His opponent had been running for essentially two years against him. Uh, Van Johnson tried to kind of run a above the fray campaign, but he also brought in top Democratic leaders, including Stacey Abrams, Nakima Williams and Keisha Lance Bottoms to Savannah to stump for him. And as you mentioned, Van Johnson is widely seen as a potential 2026 or 2028 or 2030 candidate for as a statewide politician, especially for Democrats who are looking not only to bring, of course, more diversity to the party, but also more geographic diversity outside of Metro Atlanta. And he, as the mayor of one of the state's largest cities, would definitely bring that. I think the incumbents in most of the other major mayoral races won outright, except I think Brookhaven, where we expect to see a runoff. And we can talk about that uh, as we move forward to watch that race unfold. Tia, let's move to the uh, results of elections across the country. It was a huge night for pro-choice forces. The one uh, initiative that was a, a standalone a choice for voters to make about whether they supported the right of a woman to have an abortion was in Ohio, where it was uh, uh, the election was about creating a constitutional amendment to give women that right, and it passed overwhelmingly. In Kentucky, Andy Bashir won re-election as governor against a Republican opponent who really wanted to uh, remove all uh, exceptions to abortion in the state. And in Virginia, again, Glenn Youngkin lost both chambers of the Virginia legislature when he proposed a 15-week ban on abortion. Tia, huge night for pro-choice forces. Yeah, it is. Um, a, a, I think it was clear that abortion continues to be a winning issue for Democrats on the ballot. And we've said over and over, abortion is not the only issue. It is not even always the main issue, except for, you know, in that Ohio ballot measure that was specifically about abortion. But 
it's an undercurrent and it helps Democrats in Kentucky, which is my home state. Um, Andy Bashir is a Democrat in a red state. Mm-hmm. He is very popular. He has received high marks for his leadership during national disasters, as well as a high profile mass shooting that helped. But Republicans tried to attack him on abortion. They tried to tie him to Joe Biden and particularly on abortion. Bashir took it head on. He had an ad featuring a young girl talking about why access to abortion was important to protect. It was one of the most high profile and um, what most seen, most ran Bashir ads was an ad on abortion. It mattered in that race. Greg? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, but you know, all these elections showed the political potency of abortion rights, even even really into a sense in Mississippi, where it's mm-hmm. not as polarizing. It's a deeply Republican state, but where the incumbent governor underperformed winning with about 52 percent of the vote rather than a you know 55 percent plus romp. But, you know, we, we've still seen that despite Joe Biden's struggles uh, in polling that continues to show his approval ratings in the 30s or 40s in some really key battleground states, the backlash for the Supreme Court's decision last year overturning Roe v. Wade continues uh, to persist and energize voters, not just Democrats, but of course moderates as well. And particularly in the suburbs, we saw the suburbs in Kentucky, the suburbs in Ohio. These are these are some of the swingiest areas uh, of, of, of the country. And we had voters come out in droves voting in Kentucky for Bashir and in Ohio for a constitutional amendment that would preserve abortion rights. Greg, um, what do you think this message will be for Georgia legislators, Republicans particularly? Um, We've talked to them and some are saying, let's hold the line. We don't want to bring up any new abortion legislation this session, but they are going to be under pressure from uh, some of the so-called pro-life groups to go even further. But do you think this mid this election this year will dissuade them from or or convince them they really don't want to go any further? Yeah, I do. I, I have talked to a number of Republicans, including some who say they privately believe that the, the, there should be an all-out ban on abortion or at least more strict restrictions uh, involving abortion than, than Georgia's 2019 law uh, provides. Um, but many of them are saying this now is not the time. Remember, it was an all-out fight in 2019. It passed the state house with one vote to spare. And now the dynamics are different. You have redistricting that could even cut deeper into the Republican advantage in the Georgia state legislature. So a lot of Republicans, they might say, hey, you know, we personally support new restrictions on abortion. They do not want to go there next year. Tia, similarly, on your beat in Congress, um, there are those Republicans in the House particularly who want to introduce legislation to create a national restriction on abortion. Do you think, again, what happened overnight last night will make some people think twice about that? So I think it's so interesting because there's a calculation for the primary which is different than the calculation in a competitive general election. And that the dynamics in Congress, particularly in the House, are different because most of these House districts are homogenous and they don't have to make the same calculations as perhaps a Republican running statewide in competitive states. 
And quite frankly, that's what makes Kentucky so interesting because Kentucky is a red state and Republicans still couldn't win on abortion. That being said, in a um, so many Republicans in the House, they're far right. We've talked about, you know, the MAGA Republican Party, the America First Republican Party, the hardliners. I think that there will, will still be conversation among Republicans. I think it'll still be a conversation, for example, in the primary, um, in the Republican presidential field on limits on abortion. Now, I think they'll try to nuance it um, looking ahead to the general election. But I actually think the conversations about restricting abortion will continue among Republicans. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Greg, let's move to uh, the election of 2024. Uh, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution released an exclusive poll this morning on the uh, presidential race and some of the issues that are involved in that race, conducted by the University of Georgia School of Public Affairs, something like a thousand plus Georgia general election voters. Margin of error is about three points. But, Greg, it shows a dead heat a year before the November election next year between Biden and Trump. A dead heat, uh, essentially a tie, uh, 45 44 within the margin of error, three points. It shows how tight the dynamics are in Georgia, as opposed to some of these other national polls we've seen in, in other polls of Georgia done by national outlets that show uh, that show uh, Biden with a with a bigger deficit. And Bill, I'll tell you, I heard from a number of people this morning after our poll published, analysts and smart uh, politicians and strategists from both sides of the party line, who think this reflects the true dynamic a year out of Georgia that it's a really close race. And it's not shouldn't be that surprising to people, given how close the 2020 race was with just 12,000 or so votes dividing Biden and Trump back then. We should point out, uh, Greg, that if you match up uh, President Biden with Nikki Haley and match him up with uh, Ron DeSantis, the results are virtually the same. A dead heat in those races, too, should either of them become the GOP nominee. Exactly. Nikki Haley did slightly. It's still within the margin. She's a little better. Yeah. She did slightly better, particularly with with women, um, but it's still a very, very close race. So it shows as polarizing as Donald Trump is, the, the other Republicans are, aren't doing, uh, you know, there's not a huge uh, departure from, from, from how voters see Trump and Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis in Georgia. Tia, the crosstabs in this poll are pretty interesting, I think. Among them, uh, black voters seem to be a bit more willing to support Donald Trump. I think it's about 12 points for Donald Trump in in this poll. Democrats really need probably, at, you know, 90% of the black vote if they're going to win the state next year. It's still within sort of a margin of error. So is that not a particularly meaningful result in your opinion? I mean, I think it's meaningful because we know Georgia is going to be close. Mm-hmm. And I do think what our poll shows is the current kind of outlook 
from black voters to me is what I more expected as compared to some other recent polls of swing states that put Trump at much higher support among black voters. Um, so I think Biden would like to get over 90 percent. Um, but generally speaking, about 10 percent, 10 to 12 percent is where most Republicans land. I mean, with black voters, that's the share they normally get. I think that the concern for the Biden team is less about black voters flocking to Trump. It's about black voters staying home. Mm -hmm. Because that is where the margins change in Trump's favor, because these are voters that normally would vote for Biden. And now he's not getting those to increase his margins. He is exactly right, Bill. That is the, the number one concern, or at least one of the top concerns for Democrats, not just Biden's campaign, but also we saw it from Democrats last year in Georgia's midterm. They weren't worried about 20 percent of black voters backing a Republican candidate, even Herschel Walker, of course, who was the first black U.S. Senate uh, nominee, Republican U.S. Senate nominee in, in state history. It was about depressing black turnout, particularly black male turnout. That was something we saw in polls involving Stacey Abrams. There was a gap between her black support and Raphael Warnock's support among black voters. Of course, black voters are the bulwark of the G Georgia Democratic electorate. And to be specific on our poll, some 78 percent of black voters say they'll vote for Biden next year, 12 percent behind Trump. So not a huge number. But again, as, as Tia mentioned, Democrats in Georgia generally tally at least 90 percent of support from black voters. What we saw in the midterm was that big that deficit that we were writing and talking about with Stacey Abrams it began to melt away as the election neared. And she got around the same level of support from black voters as you'd expect. But it's that turnout question that is really worrying Democrats. And it, a long way to go, a year away. But that that's sort of what the polls are showing right now. Greg, you spent a lot of time uh, uh, helping uh, craft this poll, looking at the numbers very carefully. What other crosstabs stand out for you? Well, the other big question for Joe Biden is the number of independent voters. Only about 30 percent of independent voters back Biden's bid for a second term while an additional one-fifth are undecided. Independents were a cornerstone of Joe Biden's base back in 2020. And way back then, polls showed a clear majority supported mm -hmm. his White House bid. In, in Georgia, independents generally used to at least generally tend to vote Republican. And we, we kind of lump them in with the sort of swing or moderate Republican voters who have left the party in, in the Trump era and might have split their ticket last year between Governor Kemp and Senator Raphael Warnock, the Democrat. So again, that's another key area of concern. But if you look across the aisle, there's some big concerns for Donald Trump, too. I think the contradictory nature of Republican politics in Georgia is really becoming crystal clear, because even as Trump retains you know, deep support among most Republican voters, 70 percent of Georgians say the election interference charges he faces in Fulton County, they consider them to be serious, including roughly 40 percent of Republicans and most independents. Um, a couple things that stood out to me are the fact that, um, number one, only 6% of the people uh, that were uh, polled uh, said they're undecided about next year. Now, I, I think that number is the kind of number that can shift over a period of time. But if there's any truth to that figure, it says once again that there's only a very small group of people who can be persuaded to change where they stand right now in terms of their candidate. 
that shifts a lot. Yeah. And, you know, guys, we were talking before we went on air. Sometimes you know, <laughs> before we hired UG as our pollster, we would have polls that as a reporter it didn't really reflect what I saw on the ground. Um, there's one in particular involving the the sixth district special election between John Ossoff and Karen Handel that, you know, we reported it out, but we didn't continue to kind of link back to because it didn't just seem like that was the, the, the reflection of what was happening on the ground. But here in Georgia right now, actually, I'm in Miami, but when I'm back in Georgia, this poll does seem to reflect the really tight dynamics of this race. And it reminds the Republicans and Democrats of, of the really tight nature of the of, of what we're seeing right now. And it really is right. Um, Joe Biden does not have a, a walk in the park, even though even with Donald Trump's um, uh, issues in Georgia, not just his loss in 2020, but the loss of many of the of the of the candidates he endorsed in 2022. And uh, and and Trump is, has no you know clear path either, uh, even though he is at 57 percent in the last AJC poll of likely Republican voters. OK, um, there's a lot more in this poll, including issues, uh, questions about support for Israel and its war against Hamas. And over the next couple of days, uh, the AJC will roll all that out. We've got such a packed show today that we're going to uh, uh, stop talking about the poll for right now, because in a couple minutes, we're going to be joined by former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, uh, who has a brand new book out. We're also going to talk to Greg Bustein to say, see what he's going to be looking for down in Miami at the debate uh, tonight. And Tia Mitchell has reporting for us on Rich McCormick acing out Marjorie Taylor Greene on a censure over Rashida Tlaib. All that and more on the AJC's Politically Georgia after these messages. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, just like our WABE Politically Georgia radio show does. You can get the jolt in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts. You'll get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcasts so you'll always know what's really going on. We're very happy to be able to introduce, to spend a little time with us on the show today, former U.S. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who uh, became uh, obviously a national figure when he balked at the big lie among fellow Republicans in Congress, chose not to run for re-election, and since then has been a consistent critic of the Trumpian party that has taken over Republican politics. Uh, Representative Kinzinger, we're glad you're here. We have, have a brand new book, Renegade, Defending Democracy and Liberty in Our Divided Country. So thank you so much, uh, Mr. Kinzinger, for being with us. Let, let, yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Real quick starting question, I think. What about last night's results across the country and what they say about the fact that, uh, number one, uh, pro-choice is a bigger issue than many people, uh, many Republicans wish it were be. But also Donald Trump did not have a particularly successful night last night. 
Yeah, I, I think it was certainly that's the message that comes out. You know, this uh, idea that Glenn Youngkin was going to be this, you know, guy that was going to just march in on the 11th hour and somehow save the GOP. Everybody keeps assuming that so there's going to be some magic person to save the GOP without actually taking on Donald Trump, who's, you know, corrupted the GOP. That's just not going to happen. But I also think, you know, I, I, I think I saw Bill Crystal today had posted something about like, yeah, it was a bad day for the Republicans in Virginia, but if you still add all the votes together, it was almost 50-50. And the only reason I bring that up is to say I, I get a little worried sometimes that, you know, people are scoffing at the idea that Donald Trump can win again. And I think we need to take it very seriously. He can win again, and that would be, frankly, devastating for this country. But I think generally, if I, you know, Democrats should be happy about yesterday. Greg? Congressman, thanks for joining us. This is Greg Bluestein down yeah. in Miami for today. I want to let our audience know that you, they can meet you in person Saturday, November 18th at the Marcus Jewish Community Center for the annual book festival to talk about your book. We'll be having an hour-long chat at 8 p.m. that night, and yeah. there's still a few tickets available. But Congressman, just what you were talking about, about, about the fact that you know Trump is still uh, you know, still very viable candidate. Obviously, we were before you came on air, we were talking about the latest Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll, which showed a deadlock, uh, essentially a tie between yeah. Joe Biden and Donald Trump in Georgia, and really a tie between Joe Biden and Nikki Haley and DeSantis as well in hypothetical matchups. Republicans see Georgia as a must-win state. Are you surprised at all, though, given Donald Trump's struggles in Georgia in 2020 and 2022, that he's still uh, right there, right neck and neck with with uh, Joe Biden here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I, there's not a single day that goes by that I'm, I'm not surprised. And I, and I actually mean this. I'm not even saying this like metaphorically that I'm not surprised that Donald Trump is still even a word that people are willing to utter in, in mixed company. Because, you know, in my mind, this is just somebody that has the worst man to have ever occupied the Oval Office. And for him to be considered even a serious candidate, uh, it blows me away and it goes to show there's something going on and whether it's social media or people's minds that I don't understand. And, you know, a state like Georgia, I mean, obviously you guys are on the front lines of, you know, the battleground states, a state like Georgia, it's all going to come down to turnout. And I'm going to tell you, if Donald Trump is the nominee, which looks likely, the right is going to be is going to be motivated to turn out, and the left has got and the left and center has got to be motivated to turn out as well. Because I think, and I've been saying this on my trips, and I'm looking. I, by the way, I look forward to having the conversation with you and seeing everybody. Um, but uh, I keep telling folks there is only one thing on the ballot in 2024. That's it, and that is: do you support democracy or do you support authoritarianism? And we should vote accordingly. Tia. So kind of along those same lines, Representative Kinzinger, and good to thank you for joining the show. I think we've done a couple TV hits together. So I'm yeah. glad to chat with you again. Um, we were talking earlier about how the politics in a Republican primary are often very different in dynamics to what those same candidates have to answer to in a competitive general election. And it often requires Republicans to either shift or they have a hard time competing because they've so dug in on issues like abortion, election denialism. What's the path forward for your party when 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 there's almost these very opposite forces at play that candidates have to na navigate? Well, I think, look, there's, I mean, the winning path, I guess, is different to me than the morally right path. The morally right path says, 
you know, if you're a leader, you know, when I was in Congress, I represented 700,000 people. I mean, what an amazing opportunity to lead, to tell the truth. By the way, the oath I swore was not to those 700,000 people. Every one of those 700,000 people could have wanted me to violate the Constitution. But my oath said that I couldn't violate the Constitution, which is why I voted for impeachment and spoke out against Donald Trump. So that's the moral thing is if you're going to be a leader, you have to lead. And I think, you know, Look at Peter Meyer in Michigan, a friend of mine who voted to impeach Donald Trump, built real good, like, you know, approval with people who understood he did the right thing. And just today did a hit on CNN where he said he would vote for Donald Trump if he was the nominee and said something to the extent of Donald Trump never lied to him like Joe Biden did. That is look, that's a position you, you cannot contort yourself into. Everybody can see through it. And the thing I've come to realize in the last few years in politics, Americans appreciate more than they appreciate anything. They appreciate somebody that they believe is telling the truth. And and I would just tell to any candidate, just tell the truth. And if that truth means you don't get elected, trust me, you'll be able to look at your soul. And and it'll be nice to be able to look at a clean soul in the mirror. I I guess that a follow-up from my point of view to Tia's question is, where do you see your future uh, as a you know reformed, I guess is a fair enough word, Republican. You're kind of in the same territory as Jeff Duncan, who uh, very early on uh, turned his back on Trump, started talking about GOP 2.0. Is there really a near-term future for those of you who are adamantly opposed to Trump and the politics of the far far right? I'm not sure. So, by the way, there is something in the water in Georgia in a good way that somehow you actually have bold Republicans. I think of Brad Raffensperger. I think of Jeff Duncan. You know, I think of of the the governor. And even if you don't like his policies, to be able to stand up against the MAGA wing is a huge thing. And I I don't know what Georgia does right in that, that no other state does. (laughs) But, look, I think for those of us, the future is maybe not in the immediate, right? I think, you know, there's probably if I ran as a Republican right now somewhere, I'd probably get 15 to 20 percent of the vote in the primary. And I'm fine with that because, frankly, I don't want to represent a party that's pushing the things it does now. I voted Democratic last cycle. I'll probably vote Democratic this cycle because, again, there's only one thing on the ballot. But just like the kind of crazy MAGA wing was 10 percent of the party 10 years ago, uh, I think we have to be focused on regaining that narrative in the Republican Party in the future. And, you know, we can be in a hurry to do it. But the key is people that think normal don't get discouraged when we lose election cycle after election cycle because we can gain this back. The Republican Party will keep losing elections if it keeps grasping on to the grasping onto this MAGA thing. And eventually those of us that stood for the right thing, people that think like this, are in a position to take the party back. We're here with former Congressman Adam Kinzinger here on Politically George on WABE to talk about his book, Renegade, and the most recent developments in Georgia politics. And it bears repeating and reminding that some of those Republicans who stood up to Donald Trump here in Georgia would still support him in 2024 as well. But Congressman, I want to talk about the personal toll of your vote to impeach the former president. And I'm being a more moderate Republican because you, you wrote in your book very compellingly about how you received the note from Cousins, and I'm going to quote it here, 
oh my, what a disappointment you are to us and to God. We were once proud of your accomplishments. Instead, you go against your Christian principles and join the devil's army. I mean, this was, you got pushback from all from, from all over the country, but you know, it had to be uh, particularly difficult to face it from your own family. Yeah, well, let me first off say, uh, if anybody says that they'll support Donald Trump if he's the nominee, then they have never really taken a stand against MAGA. I want to be very clear on that, because you cannot support Donald Trump. And just because you don't like Joe Biden's policies, Donald Trump is anti-democratic. Yeah, so in terms of the pushback, like, yeah, it, it was, you know, for the last 10 months since I've been out of Congress, I've come to the, like, realization, I guess, or I've, I've come to really grip with the impact that took. Because when you're in the middle of combat, you know, I'm a veteran. And when you're in the middle of combat, nobody gets PTSD during it. It's when you come home. And it's kind of the same with politics. It was when I got out and the January 6th committee was over that I just realized the impact. And so, yes, family sending that really is, it's nuts, right? It's nuts, but it also hurts. And I had my co-pilot in Iraq, for instance, who I fought with in the war, sent me a text about a year ago that said, I'm ashamed to have ever flown with you. And as, as I came to kind of at grips with what that was, I, I just had to realize and try to talk to my, try to convince myself the truth, which is these people have been abused by a man who thinks about nothing but himself. The fact that my co-pilot in Iraq can say to me, he's ashamed to have flown with me. And he knows at the bottom of his heart that I'm the one out there telling him the truth and that Donald Trump is lying to him. But it goes to show what happens in a cult and why we need to break people from this cult. And that's why we need leaders, frankly, everybody on that debate stage tonight and nights prior, not just Chris Christie, to tell people the truth, because people are looking at them to tell them the truth. And when everybody says Donald Trump is the greatest thing since sliced bread, we shouldn't be surprised when when the base believes it. Tia? I I. I hear what you're saying, Representative Kinzinger, but then I think about the reality, which is when Greg covers this debate tonight, um, yes, there are some Republicans running for president like Chris Christie who are challenging, um, you know, very anti-Trump. But there are others who say it's more nuanced. People like Nikki Haley, people like when Vice President Pence was running for president who criticized Trump in some ways but still have pledged to vote for him if he's the Republican nominee and have said they did good things with him. Even in Georgia, you gave Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger a lot of credit. Governor Kemp has said he's going to support Donald Trump as president if he's the nominee. So how do you reconcile that? I think a lot of Republicans think that you can win in a state like Georgia by distancing yourself from Trump in certain ways, but not completely rejecting him. Yeah, I'm not sure what I have to reconcile, because I had said maybe about a couple minutes ago that anybody that says they would support Trump is unworthy of what I'm saying, because you cannot choose. So if Governor Kemp said he would support Trump if he's the nominee, I haven't seen that, but that's insane, right? That's nuts. If uh, and, and as I mentioned on that debate stage, my point was, they are the tier two influencers that Republican that Republican voters look to. And they're not saying Donald Trump is corrupt. They're not saying that Donald Trump is a man that shouldn't be president of the United States, with the exception of Chris Christie. And so even when Mike Pence, who people were calling for hanging him that day, what does he say? Well, he disagrees with some things Donald Trump did. But Donald Trump had great policies. Look, 
You can have the best policies in the world, but if you don't believe in democracy, those policies are meaningless because they don't matter. They won't last because this country will end up in a serious situation. So I'm optimistic long-term for the United States of America. I truly am. I think 2028 is going to be an amazing election year because you're going to have all kinds of new blood from both sides of the aisle bringing new ideas in. I hope. Like, that's what I'm holding out hope for. But when I watch that debate tonight and Chris Christie will be the only person up there saying the truth about Donald Trump, there is no doubt and no wonder then that the base is still sticking with him because people are just unwilling to tell the truth to the voters. Uh, Mr. Kensinger, I know we've only got a couple more minutes with you, uh, but I'd like to ask you, you've already said you'll probably vote Democratic uh, in the next election. We know Illinois is a state where you have to register by party. uh, So I guess it precludes what I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. As you look, think about the debate stage tonight, uh, and knowing that your endorsement would be probably poison to a Republican candidate, <laughs> which of those five people on the stage tonight could you imagine yourself supporting for the GOP nomination? Well, right now there's only one, and that's uh, Chris Christie, because while I disagree and I have obviously concerns with his acts in 2016, he's trying to pay for his his you know, what he's done in the past now. And he's the only one telling the people the truth. I mean, watching him in in Florida, standing in front of a crowd, booing him, saying that their, you know, their lies are despicable or whatever the words were. That was, to me, gained a lot of respect. And we have to recognize that. So that's what I would see. And, and, uh, but, you know, my focus obviously right now is just in getting out and reminding people that all these issues we care about and things we, we are concerned with, None of it matters if democracy fails. And uh, and that's the number one issue on the ballot is the issue of democracy. And we have to have an unnatural alliance, an uneasy alliance between some on the left and some on the right that see this the right way to defend democracy, because we can always debate issues that have been debated for 100 years. We can't always do that if our democracy fails. Greg, a last quick question. Yeah, Congressman, before we let you go, I do want to ask you a question about a former colleague of yours who has become a national figure here in Georgia, and it's not Governor Kemp. Uh, it's not Raphael Warnock. It's uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Our latest poll shows her unfavorable ratings in Georgia at 57. Her favorable, though, is at 25, with 40 percent of Republicans giving her favorable reviews. You got the chance to work with her. Of course, you've 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 criticized her over the years as well. Uh, she she is now jockeying to be Donald Trump's running mate maybe run for U.S. Senate, maybe run for statewide office down the road. I love your opinions on her rise in the Republican Party and her influence, especially when it came to the House rebellion just a few weeks ago. Well, I mean, how appropriate, because she, you know, is the original Jewish space laser conspiracy theorist and angry person, uses fear, uses fear of the other side to to gain power and and has become really the poster child for the GOP. And the sad thing is, is even everybody I'm sure in her district knows that she's a con artist. I mean, she may believe some of this. She may not. She just wants to be famous. That's all it comes down to. So like, yeah, I don't have, as you can tell, much respect for Marjorie Taylor Greene. And uh, I'm actually kind of pleased to hear her low approval numbers among Republicans. It goes to show that, you know, being a con artist can sometimes catch up with you. Well, Congressman Kensinger, you certainly take her on in your book, 
renegade defending <laughs> democracy and liberty in our divided country. It's really been a pleasure to uh, have you here today. We should remind everyone that you're also an analyst on CNN, which is where Tia Mitchell has uh, inter- interfaced uh, with you. And you'll be at the uh, Jewish Book Festival here in Atlanta with Greg Bluestein on Saturday night. So thank you so much for joining. And, and Mr. Kinzinger, this Skokie boy is glad to have a chance to talk to another man from Illinois. Thanks for being with us. You bet. It was great. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. Tia, let's talk for just a couple of minutes because we want to get to to Bluestein and his uh, observations about what to expect in the debate tonight. But um, Rich McCormick uh, ended up being the man who was able to finally get a censure motion for Rashida Tlaib for uh, her alleged anti-Semitic comments. And I think there are a lot of people who say they weren't alleged. Um, uh, After Marjorie Taylor Greene tried and failed, uh, it's just one more example of Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, taking an issue, having an issue with a number of her member of her own delegation, even though she finally bowed out and said, yeah, McCormick's censure can go forward. Yeah, it's it's showing a very interesting dynamic playing out that Marjorie Taylor Greene is kind of going back to her roots of being the outsider status. We saw her when she was very aligned with Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He kind of pulled her in. I think she held her fire a little bit because her and McCarthy were so close, but he's not speaker anymore. I think she's taking the handcuffs back off and um, in really branding herself as someone who's from the grassroots. So when her Tlaib censure was tabled last week, she went on the attack against McCormick and others. And then when McCormick did his own thing and it was clear he had the support of of leaders so that his um, his bill was the one that passed, which it happened late last night. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is not happy. I want to play. This is what she said last night on her way to that vote when she said, you know, Rich McCormick bill, Rich McCormick's bill is the one that's going to pass to censure Tlaib. But I'm not happy about it. It's not about Rich McCormick. Nobody cares about Rich McCormick. Most people have no idea that he's even doing this. Um, Most people think it's my resolution. 
but um, he's only doing it because he got his ego bruised because he got called out. People were mad at him last week. So to me, it's not about Rich McCormick at all. And she went on to say it's a failure of our leadership to organize this process and communication within the conference. So, I mean, you heard her. She's uh, she's clearly not playing nice, not just with Rich McCormick, though. Her criticism goes all the way up to leadership, including new speaker Mike Johnson. So much for Republican unity in the Georgia House delegation, guys. <laughs> I do want to add, though, too, to, to Tia's great points. This is also a sense from House Republican leaders that Rich McCormick needed a win, too. He's a he's a freshman congressman who might be a target of redistricting in just a few weeks here in Georgia. We know the court has ordered a new majority black uh, U.S. House District in West Metro Atlanta. His district isn't really U.S. Uh, is West Metro Atlanta. It's more of North Metro Atlanta. Goes all the way into the exit, really all in the rural Georgia into Dawson County. But the, depending on how it could be redrawn, he could be paired with another incumbent. It, there, there could be all sorts of um, redistricting fallout for him. And so this gives him something to talk about on the campaign trail, an actual legislative uh, victory that he can put his name on. You know, it occurs to me, Tia, and you cover her uh, on a virtually a daily basis, that Marjorie Taylor Greene at any moment is willing to express rage at virtually anyone who crosses her, even in the slightest way. Um, it's really kind of an extraordinary thing. In that sense, she's sort of Donald Trump-like. And that's what she said. I actually asked her, I said, are you on an island by yourself? You fell out with the House Freedom Caucus. You've fallen out with, you know, there are moderates, frontliners who never supported Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now you're attacking leadership. And she said, I am not here to make friends. I'm here to represent the voters. Me and Donald Trump, basically what she said was me and Donald Trump are the ones who reflect voters, Republican voters. These guys in Washington don't. And we're going to probably hear that message a lot from her over the next year, it, you know, particularly that she remains kind of or is embracing, again, this outsider status in Washington. OK, um, thank you for that, Tia. All right, Greg Bluestein, you're in Miami. You're ready to go. You'll be in the spin room tonight with a number of other journalists watching the debate and then getting reaction from some of the candidates and their representatives. We, five candidates on stage um, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis in the center uh, positions. What are you going to be looking for tonight? I think the biggest question, I'd love to hear you guys on this one, but the biggest question is, and it's pretty obvious, does this debate even matter? Will people be tuning in? Because there's been this parallel track of Republican, uh, doing this entire Republican race that we've seen from the very beginning with Donald Trump essentially ignoring Many of his rivals, he's been tearing down DeSantis, but he's been ignoring a lot of the other rivals and ignoring these debates. He's having a counter-programming rally in, uh, d just down the road tonight that will attract thousands, and he will not be joining that that five-person debate stage um, in Miami. And there's this, you know, in the remaining track, the remaining track of candidates, they've been desperately trying to position themselves as the leading Trump alternative, but none has broken out, none has emerged. And we keep on kind of casting these debates. Could this be the breakout moment for DeSantis or for Nikki Haley or for Tim Scott or for whoever? But so far, there hasn't been that moment. No one has emerged as the leading Trump alternative. And most polls show Donald Trump not just leading the field, but above 50 percent. 
Uh, Tia, I want to pick up on what Greg said and then throw it to you. I, I think he asks the right question. What kind of ratings will tonight's debate get? For for those who are going to pay attention to it and who are still thinking maybe there's an alternative to Donald Trump, I think what's going to be particularly interesting is the uh, 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 action between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley has moved ahead of DeSantis, I think, in the New Hampshire polling. She's just about even with him in Iowa. And of course, DeSantis's campaign, his super PAC, has been worried about that for some time, which is why they launched a multi-million dollar ad campaign accusing Nikki Haley of uh, playing nice with China during her time as governor. So I assume those two see themselves as really uh, the uh, one that the other has to go after tonight. I agree, which is going to make it so interesting because there will be three others on stage who will have a vested interest in breaking that uh, Haley DeSantis um, duality up. So you have U.S. Senator Tim Scott this is really his last chance to break through. I think so many candidates were trying to make it to this third debate. And now, and once tonight is over, there's going to be some soul searching in these campaigns among their donors. And Tim Scott is kind of reaching that reckoning moment because he's just struggled to break through in the way that his supporters have said, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Then you have Chris Christie. We all know his main job is to like attack Trump in ways the other candidates won't, but it's becoming like a broken record. And will they ignore him or engage him? And then finally, we have Vivek Ramaswamy, who remember that first debate and he came out almost as the winner. He got all this new attention. He was like the Trump on the stage without Trump, but that's quickly people, you know, voters, Republican insiders grew weary of that quickly. He didn't seem to have much substance to back it up. So once again, this, can he gain any traction? Will he go for the jugular and kind of be the outrageous one to kind of create some moments for himself? That's what I'll be looking for tonight. Bill, I want to throw the question back at you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not this debate matters. Is it too late? We know there's only going to be five candidates on the stage, which gives them more time to shine. Could also make it easier for one of those candidates to have that aforementioned elusive breakout moment. But many Republicans already say it's too late. Yeah, I I, I think that we're kind of on the same page on that, Greg. Um, every indication is that Donald Trump, despite four indictments in four different, and many more indictments, many more charges against him, but uh, continues to grow in popularity even as he uh, faces uh, uh, criminal charges in uh, both Washington and here in Fulton County in Georgia. Um, it's Greg, it's really difficult to see how any candidate will um, be able to close that massive gap. But, Greg, as you well know, uh, having been in Iowa and New Hampshire in those early uh, states, as I was for many, many years, things can turn uh, in the Iowa caucuses, in the New Hampshire primary. Um, if someone else, if a Nikki Haley performs particularly well, or Ron DeSantis, um, maybe Tim Scott... It does give them a little momentum moving forward. And if Trump, more particularly, underperforms in either of those states, I think it will give some hope, Greg, to those who really want to see a different nominee. It's still a long shot. Yeah, you're right. I mean, momentum can be a very fickle thing. 
And we've seen just even a second place finish in those early voting states can revive a campaign. The race's epicenter has clearly shifted, not here in Florida, not to South Carolina. It's all in Iowa for the most part. Nikki Haley, as you mentioned, is is running closer with DeSantis in, in, in Iowa for that number two spot. And then there's New Hampshire. And Chris Christie is staking his entire campaign on New Hampshire. He basically has New Hampshire to himself uh, many days while the candidates are elsewhere, mostly in Iowa. So uh, this 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 entire dynamics of this race could flip. But we also see polls, even in states like Georgia, with 57 percent of likely Republican voters already backing Donald Trump and only a handful who say that they're willing to change that vote. Do you? Yeah, I know that it's kind of a while away, but as we talk about Iowa, we should note that Ron DeSantis did get a very key yeah. endorsement this week with yeah. Ohio Iowa Governor Reynolds and and I think his I think Reynolds and DeSantis are I guess growing in confidence that he can win the Iowa caucus. Now, what Trump's folks are saying is that Iowa caucus, yeah, maybe DeSantis can get us, but he can't get us in some of these other early primary states. But I, I think he's DeSantis is definitely putting his stakes in Iowa. Do you guys agree? Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned that uh, DeSantis now has the endorsement of Iowa's very, very popular governor. And in a caucus state, that can be very meaningful because obviously getting people to turn out in caucus uh, requires a big, big um, political machine to get behind you. And if she can deliver that to DeSantis, it could be very good news. Do you agree, Greg? Yeah. And uh, caucuses are very tremendous amount of work. Um, You know, just getting the volunteers staffed up, getting them prepared for caucus. I I got to experience caucuses uh, in 16 and in 20, very complicated affairs that are, that are ground intensive. Um, I do want to mention the other big one, another big factor in this debate, which is it's the first time the last debate was in September in California. So since then, not only have we had a new house speaker. We also, of course, have seen the eruption of war between Israel and Hamas mm-hmm. in Gaza. And so foreign policy usually doesn't, isn't the, you know, a, a, a number one factor or even number two or three factor in a lot of these uh, presidential races, but we'll see, especially how Nikki Haley, a former UN ambassador who made uh, Israel a defining cause of her term as UN ambassador. We'll see how she uh, approaches that subject on stage tonight. You can only assume that five Republicans are going to voice their adamant support for Israel and its fight against Hamas. But one of the things I like about what you just said, Greg, is we recall in the last debate, Nikki Haley used her foreign policy chops as UN ambassador to go after Vivek Ramaswamy and say, basically, you know, every time you talk, you seem more stupid. I become more stupid, essentially, and that could be a factor in giving her credibility tonight. What about abortion and how it might uh, come up tonight? Obviously, you can't win a Republican nomination for president or any other office these days if you are particularly pro-choice. How do they deal with what happened last night on the stage tonight, Dia? Yeah, I I can see um, a scenario where Nikki Haley uses abortion and other topics to kind of demonstrate how she's the only candidate who can inject thoughtful nuance into the conversation. So I can see Nikki Haley saying like, yes, we know that Republicans don't support abortion. We want 
limits on it. We don't want, you know, accusing Democrats of wanting abortion with no limitations. But we have to be thoughtful. We have to be strategic. We can't turn off voters. All right. Um, Tia Mitchell gets the last word in uh, today's Politically Georgia. Tia, thank you so much for being with us today. Greg, it'll be fascinating tomorrow to hear your take on the debate tonight. It's also Survivor Night uh, so there are an awful lot of people who will be watching that <laughs> instead of the Republican primary debate. Um, we're out of time for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. It's been really wonderful to have you with us uh, today. Let me just very quickly point out that we are always interested in hearing the questions that you have um, about politics. And you can very easily call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime, leave a question, we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show. We do that on Fridays. The number is 404-526-AJCP, 404-526-2527. We really look forward to hearing from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE on weekday mornings at 10. Or look for Politically Georgia, as you already do, in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 o'clock each afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.